Hello, friends. We're back with episode 141 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. This is the weekly podcast where we showcase some of the brilliant resources that have been shared on this week's Our Weekly Issue. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, we are delighted that you joined us from wherever you are around the world. And I am joined by my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Eric. Uh, I got some projects going on around the house. We have some some trees being taken down today, so I'm I'm hoping that uh, my mute button can try to filter out most of the most of the chainsaws, but we'll see. Yes, and um, hopefully the roof stays on too. You never know when these things are cut down, but <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll think the best thoughts for you. And I've been not quite ripping down trees. I've been ripping down infrastructure of these shiny houses I've been building lately. That felt like I was chainsawing different development branches and um i got lots of stories about not opening ports on your docker container and not realizing it for a good four or five hours but yes that this is the way i roll i learned the hard way so fun stories to share but there will be a highlight later on that probably would have helped me immensely for that exercise but let's get right to it shall we so this week's issue is curated by tony el harbar and as always he had tremendous help from our fellow RWiki team members and contributors like all of you around the world. Guess who's back to share some of her great shared learning? Mael Salmon, former curator, is back once again. Boy, if you haven't been bookmarking her, her blog, you really should because it seems like every single week she's providing some really great nuggets of wisdom in your R development journey. And in this case, she is highlighting some great uses of the recent release of Test That. Test that for those that aren't familiar is the opinionated yet very influential and helpful workflow package for managing your tests in R packages and even non-R packages. You can use test that in a variety of ways. It has a long history, and recently the, the Tidyverse team has released version 3.2.0 of test that. And it came with a lot of great features. We'll have links to the full release notes in the show notes. But what Ma'al highlights here is one that has always been a wish list of mine that has now come to fruition. And oftentimes in your test files that you make with test that, you're going to have more than one actual test inside. Maybe they're a group of related tests for like an API call or maybe the statistical function. And it's got different, you know, different sub functions inside. Well, if you ever just wanted to test a single test that was in a, within a file, that has multiple tests, now you can very easily with when the test underscore file function, there is a new argument called desk, the ESC, where you just put in the name of that test that you labeled it, and now you can test that single test in that file. Yes, that is a time saver. I've been there recently a few months ago with upgrading a package at the day job where it was just one test, in a file with about 20 tests, then yes, I had to run through each of those 20 tests over and over just for that one that I was checking. So this will be a very immense help for my testing adventures. And as always, Mael always puts in plugs to the additional resources that she's found helpful. And this is where I learned about the lazy test package as well. That is actually authored by Kiro Mueller over at Synchra. Um, this is a great package that lets you have more formal ways of testing certain tests in your test that workflow without having to rerun everything that you've already deemed as working. So that's a great find for me. 
to to follow up on after this recording. I'm going to be putting that in my testing workflows. And in our second half of the blog post, this gets to an issue that I've been wrestling with quite a bit in my testing adventures, especially with packages that are doing certain side effecty like operations, such as changing environment variables on the fly or writing to temporary directories and whatnot. Well, a lot of times as you're in that debugging workflow and then you're testing those, you know, functions that you have in your package that are doing these side effect operations, your environment after that debugging is probably all twisted and mangled and then you've got to manually reset all that back. Well, Ma'al in the original blog post had a custom solution that he she put in place, but in the spirit of the art community, there is an easier way. And she uh, then in this addendum to the blog post links to another blog post that she has written based on some excellent advice from Jenny Bryan that pointed her to some additional enhancements to the with our package that will let you basically clean up your testing mess, as Ma'al calls it, using a function from with our called deferred run. Now, I admit, I've looked at this post a couple times, and it, it still hasn't quite clicked with me yet, but I trust Ma'al, I'll trust her word on this, that apparently if you have a testing function that in her example in this additional post is going to change a temporary, temporary directory, it's going to set an environment variable, it's going to do something, and then let's say you had finished debugging that, and then you look at your environment, your R environment afterwards, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, my active project directory is now this temp area somewhere. I've got this environment variable that's been switched, but I got to switch it back. Apparently, just running with our deferred run will get everything back to the way it was before that testing nightmare. That is huge. My goodness, I had no idea this existed. So with our, I was already a fan of with our before. I use it all the time for like the temporary directory stuff the environment variable stuff. We even learned in last week's highlight about switching the language temporarily. There's so many uses of this. So this is another great advertisement for what WithR can bring to the table here. So again, great rolling learning, as I would say, that Mel has put in this blog post. So yes, these are all great, great pieces of advice that makes your testing workflow less friction, less manual effort, so you can just get on with the fun stuff, right? Of actually building that great package. So thank you, Mel, as always, for documenting your learning in these um, blog posts for us, the feature on our weekly, which is becoming a very regular occurrence, which is appropriate. So Mike, what did you think about Mel's testing workflow enhancements here? Kudos to Mel for continuing to to put out this awesome content for us. And just to piggyback on your, your with our conversation, you know, there's not too many instances where I have uh, to sort of jump back and forth between different R projects. Um, but I did have a use case fairly recently. Uh, our company collaborated with uh, Peter Solomos's company, Analithium. And within this, this GitHub repository, uh, we had a, a Gollum Shiny app, but also a couple other folders uh, at the, sort of the root of this repository for some heavy data processing and things like that. And, and each one of these folders at the root of the repository had uh, its own R project within those folders, just because of sort of the, the, the scale of what was going on um, within each of those those highest directories. So uh, it, 
needless to say, the, the with our package uh, was really, really useful in enabling us to jump back and forth between some of those different R projects and not get things sort of messed up because it's very, very easy to, uh, to, to sort of get yourself messed up because the, the way that an R project sort of manages the current working directory, right? You might be working on scripts in a one of these different folders, uh, but not realize that you hadn't actually, you know, double clicked on the, the .R project file to actually make sure that you are in the right place. So the, the with our package is, is really useful for programmatically ensuring that you're you're in the right place. So that's that's super helpful. And I just want to call that out. And thank you, Mael, for, for highlighting that. And then sort of back to her first part of the blog post, uh, you know, the RStudio IDE is, is awesome. And within your test that testing scripts, right, you can just click a button in the top right of the editor that says run test, and you can run the tests uh, in that particular script. Similar to how we uh, have the run app button for our app.r scripts when developing Shiny apps that we can just click right within our studio. But sometimes you have a workflow or a use case where you, you want to do that programmatically. You don't want to actually push that button. And it's nice to know that now we can programmatically run just the tests in a single file using uh, the test that test file function or even run a single test within a file, which is pretty incredible, uh, using DevTools test active file function and, and passing sort of the description of that test uh, to the DESC desk argument of that function. So really handy utilities. I feel like Maella is always calling out the, these really nifty utility functions that just sort of make uh, your quality of life that much better uh, as an R developer, especially when you're developing packages and, and testing those packages and things like that. Um, so it's very applicable to my day to day, and I'm I'm very grateful for this highlight uh, making it this week. So thank you, Mel. Yeah, and I'm I'm sensing she's really been getting into a lot of new adventures of package development based on the recent history of her blog posts. And yeah. So please take it from me and Mike that packages like with R and combined with test that are a great way to streamline your package development. So definitely great, great additional insights here from Al. So thank you. Thank you very much for these, for these great tips here. Speaking of great tips, oh my goodness, I had a bit of FOMO um, because last week was Jumping River's uh, Shiny in Production Conference 2023 that took place in, in England. And boy, there were a lot of great talks and great resources shared in this conference. And that one of those is the subject of our next highlight here. I have been looking for an extremely long time either through trying to build notes myself or some other resources on just a quick yet detailed enough primer on those that have been building shiny apps that are going to go to a production system. What are the best practices? How can you get in front of issues that can occur to your users or your future development self? And that is the topic of logging. There are lots of ways you can do logging in Shiny. Um, there is may not be so much a one-size-fits-all, 
But I dare say this next highlight, I'm going to hot take time. This is probably the definitive logging and shiny resource I have ever seen. Full stop, but no, I'm not going to stop here. We're going to talk about why it is. This is coming from Tan Ho, who is a machine learning engineer at Zealous Analytics. And Tan is a very good friend of mine. Um, For those that don't know, Tan was very instrumental in getting me into the R streaming adventures that I went on a couple years ago. And actually, as of a week ago, I am now the proud owner of a few selected NFL verse hex stickers that are going on my laptop as a badge of honor for some of the great packages he's been developing in the sports analytics space. But yes, back to the subject at hand. Logging and shiny. You may not know exactly why you should, but Tan does a great job of telling you why you should. Because it is very easy to have something that works great on your machine as you're developing it, but then you're trying to figure out just what happened to that user who gave you that cryptic email of, oh, it just crashed on me. I don't know what to do. Well, wouldn't you like to know what they were doing to get to that crash? Wouldn't you like to be able to have insights into like the variables that were set, maybe the inputs that were set? And also, maybe your app is depending on other infrastructure, API calls, HPC jobs. Hey, I I don't know who would ever do that. Wink, wink. Um, But there is a lot of ways that your Shiny app could, quote unquote, fail, even without you realizing it. That's where logging comes in. And there are two different levels of logging that he talks about in his presentation here. I can't wait to see the recording of this, by the way. It's not out yet, but we're going to obviously link to the slides in the show notes here. But in terms of app level debug or logging, there are two perspectives to keep in mind even on this. You want something that is readable at your level, i.e. the human level, maybe for you and your co-developers, maintainers of your application. But you want these logs to be processed into other other frameworks that will make it easier from a machine-readable standpoint that you could tie this into other tooling, which we'll touch on a little bit. So having that perspective of getting the logs in a more human-readable way, but also exporting them out to a machine-readable way, which, spoiler, is JSON. JSON for all the things in Shiny and web development passing data back and forth. Wouldn't it be great if there is a way to do that succinctly in R itself? Well, yes, there is. Um, and that is the package that he recommends, although it's only one of many in this space for logging in R, he references, he recommends the logger package. The logger package I have used in the past and with great success. This is authored by Gurgly DeRosi. Hopefully I said that right, but I've seen his presentations in the past. He is very top-notch R developer that has been using R in production for a very long time over 10 years, given one of his recent talks he had back in 2021. But the logger package is a great way to capture both the human-readable side of logging and then be able to export them out as JSON files in another custom logger that you flag in the overall structure of your app. And also, you can customize the different alert levels that you you can specify for when certain log messages are outputted. For those that aren't aware, there's about five logging levels 
going all the way to the bug at the most extreme spectrum where you're outputting almost anything you can all the way to maybe just informational type messages. But then you still want the other three levels, warnings, errors, and you know the worst of all, fatal errors. You want those outputted in your logs as well so you can really have some transparency, like I said, into what made your application actually crash. So that's one side of it. But sometimes it's one thing to do the app level debugging. You also want to know what's happening in your environment itself. And this is where Tan has coded up a very handy example function. This is kind of like a very customized session info. He calls it SITREP. And there is a link to the actual code behind this in the, in the GitHub repo that we'll link to with the example that Tan has to accompany the slides. And this function is going to give you almost everything you'd want to know, especially on a production system. The system information, like the version of R running, what's the OS behind it. If it's on a virtual machine or a Dockerized setup, it's probably going to be a Linux box. So it's good to have that info. The environment variables, what other packages are being used in this environment, and their versions so that you know quickly oh, wait, did I get the wrong version of Arlang or did I get the wrong version of ggplot2? You'll be able to quickly see that in this customized function. And yes, it is structured in such a way that you can pipe that to a JSON and then that can be fed into a downstream system. And that's what I'll conclude with here in my summary is that when you're in production, you've got users running your app often in different places, and often you want to have a system that can route all these logs into one place. It looks like, given the content of the slides here, that Zealous is utilizing Shiny Proxy as its um, orchestration system for Shiny apps as containers, which is, again, a concept I'm quite fond of as apps as containers. But a lot of these principles we'll talk about here could also apply if you're leveraging other services that basically put your Shiny app in a Kubernetes-like environment as containers. So one way or another, you're probably dealing with containers in this setup, but you might have these you know, more um, front-end facing servers. And then within that, you've got users across different geographic reason, regions hitting your application at once. So where should those logs go? Now, you could take the very crude approach and literally SSH into the servers themselves, find that particular container's log files, trying to get the errors in the log files, and that's where you're going to need your grep and VI or Vim foo, if you will, um, that you hope you found it, but take it from me as doing Shiny with HPC. It can be quite difficult to find all that. So it sure would be nice to put this somewhere in a central place. It looks like Shiny Proxy has a great set of resources for how you can add monitoring to your Shiny Proxy um, logging system, which plugs into some standard tools in the IT space, such as Grafana and Loki. I've heard about these quite a bit in the other podcasts I've listened to. But in the end, this is going to be kind of dependent on what infrastructure you have available. So you want to find a solution that fits what you are currently dealt with in your IT of your organization's uh, department. And this is where there is kind of a somewhat ubiquitous resource that I've seen in my daily work, maybe for others too in enterprise-like setups. That is object storage. Oftentimes, IT will give you, or you could request, access to an object storage. This is typically 
Amazon S3 or another service that provides S3-like functionality because there's a global API for that. And if you can send these logs from these production servers or these containers running these applications to this S3 bucket, guess what? If they're in JSON, then you can pipe that somewhere else. You can pipe that to another server that's going to handle perhaps assembling all this for, guess what? Maybe another Shiny app that lets you search these logs itself in a very intuitive interface. Maybe you want to pipe the very scary-looking error messages or logging messages to another tool for asynchronous alerts. Maybe Slack. Maybe, heaven forbid, Teams or something like that. But you could easily put these in another system so your developers are notified on the spot. Maybe a GitHub issue as well. So that you know when something went wrong, you don't have to wait for the angry user to email you. You can be proactively alerted on this. There is just so many cool nuggets here. I could go on for an hour about this. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it because I really could have used these principles literally last week when I was working on an app for the upcoming R Pharma conference. But this is a great resource. And so far, the, the um, solutions that Tan has outlined here, in their opinion... It's working well for them, and until they have to pivot to something else, they're going to keep as is. It's this hybrid, a shiny proxy, this centralized storage of the logs, and then ingesting that into other systems for further analysis and further alerting. There are lots of awesome takeaways here, but the really the big ones I want to emphasize here, be proactive with logging, build it in from the start, because it is kind of always harder, just like with tests, to build them in after they've already completely what 89% of your shiny app development, your future self and your future developers will thank you immensely for putting the attention to detail for logging. Now, it may not be the solution to everything, but my goodness, I think it's going to be a solution for probably 80 or 90% of your, of your issues that you can encounter when you deploy these apps in a production setting. So excellent, excellent overview, Tan, and I can't wait to watch a recording of this. But really awesome work here. And again, this is going straight to my bookmarks because Shiny and logging in Shiny has been a concept I wanted to get better at for years. This is a great way for me to start. This is fantastic. I mean, I, I totally agree with you, Eric, that this is now the definitive Shiny logging resource. We haven't really had a firm resource around this topic. I think lots of disparate stuff here and there, uh, but but thanks to Tan for putting this repository together, these phenomenal Google Slides together as well. There's so much to check out and you're, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't take a look at it yourself. One note that I will always sort of put out there when we are talking about this topic of logging in Shiny, keep your console clean. Please keep your console clean during development. If you are developing a Shiny app and when you run it, there are like messages or warnings in the console because of namespace collisions, or if you're getting a message because you're you're reading in a CSV file, but you're for, with the reader package, but you're not uh, you're not setting the column names, so it's like spitting out to you how it uh, decided what type each column name is going to be. Those things are just going to bog down your logs. And then when you do actually run into an error in your uh, your app, when you go to look at the logs, they're going to be so convoluted with all of this stuff that, that happens in the console that you, you could have eliminated so that you can just see in the logs really the issue that you are trying to get to. 
So keep your console clean. Keep your console clean. Please keep your console clean. That is is some of my biggest advice when you're starting to uh, push your shiny apps into a a production environment where other folks are going to use them and break them inevitably. You know, if we ever do the workshop again, I think this will be a big part of that. (laughs) Yes. But we are starting to see some things that that have long been wanted in the Shiny ecosystem come to life. Uh, And the logger package is fantastic. And again, thanks to Tan for providing uh, these great examples of of how to use it within your your Shiny uh, environment. Another Another thing that we have, I believe, been waiting for for quite a bit in the Shiny ecosystem is like telemetry and and uh, analytics around your Shiny apps. And I just want to shout out John Kuhn, I believe, just launched an, an alpha version of some software they have called uh, Shiny Metrics at his company OpFX, which I believe is a service for, for getting analytics and tracking statistics of your Shiny apps. And it's, it's somewhat related to, to logging, I would say. And you know, the first 5,000 events per month are, are free. After that, it is a paid service. Um, so I did just want to shout that out quickly. And as you said, you know, Tan's team is running Shiny Proxy, which I assume um, is is being scaled with Kubernetes. I'm imagining they have a, a pretty significant deployment going on over there to, to their end users. I know that they have two separate Shiny Proxy deployments. Uh, taking a look at his Google Slides, one in the US and, and a separate one for uh, the deployment for, I believe, the, the EU-facing customers that they have. Uh, I don't have to tell you, Eric, again, how much of a fan I am of Shiny Proxy, but we do a ton of Shiny Proxy deployment, and really the reason I love it is because it's containerized. You can just uh, you know, have your, your Shiny app as a Docker container, uh, have your Docker file and deploy that app uh, within your Shiny proxy environment. And essentially, it's, it's not going to break because you have the environment completely containerized. Dependencies are managed within that, that, Docker, um, that, that Docker container. And I love it because of that. I know that there are some potential uh, things coming to the, the Posit Connect ecosystem that may allow you to do uh, something similar, but uh, between you and me, Packrat, Packrat hurts me sometimes. Ooh. I've been hurt by Packrat, so that's why I love uh, <laughs> that's why I love the the Docker capabilities that, that come with Shiny Proxy. But I know RNV is, is helping uh, in that regard, and, and we're moving away from from Packrat. But uh, that's just a, a shout out to, to Shiny Proxy and the Open Analytics team, which, as you mentioned, has another public repo called Shiny Proxy Monitoring. Uh, this is all open source, all out in the open, which is which I love as well, and, and that's for monitoring your Shiny Proxy service deployed on, on Kubernetes. So I know that that Tan leverages that as well within his team, and you know as you said, it would definitely be great to store logs in a more object oriented uh, type of way or object storage type of way, excuse me, like JSON. And Eric, only you would suggest building another Shiny app for seeing the logs from your other Shiny apps. Uh, that is. Absolutely awesome, uh, shiny apps all the way down, and uh, really grateful to Tan for for putting together this phenomenal logging resource. It's something that I already know I'm going to refer back to all the time. You know, I I, I do like the shiny all the things, but hey, why not, right? I mean, I've done the same thing with database metrics. Why not for logging too? But that's the key, right? Getting this, like I said, in the both human readable and the machine readable format, you have so much more flexibility in this space and you know it it does take a bit of discipline to get up and running with this but start small just start getting your feet wet 
maybe just outputting those logs just in your testing to our directory somewhere, just get a feel for it. And then when you get access to that more robust storage mechanism, whether it's object storage or maybe the IT team is really fancy and gives you access to a database where you can load those JSONs as a field in your table. Hint, hint, Postgres. I've been doing that myself in some recent Shining development. You, the, the possibilities are endless, but then the other part, the other part that you mentioned with Shiny Proxy and other services, once your app is a container, we talked about this in the workshop in passing, you have so many possibilities ahead of you where you can deploy that thing. And then if you take the discipline so that no matter where you deploy this, if your logging mechanism is robust enough that no matter where it's being run, you can grab the information you need. Again, you've made your development life a heck of a lot easier. And I am also experimenting with another one of these uh, services from my R Pharma app where I'm going to, it's basically, there are lots of these services that are front ends, the Kubernetes, where you bring your own app as a container, any kind of web app, as long as it's a Docker container, they can take it. I'm experimenting with that for next week and hopefully it holds the handle or holds the user load of a potentially a thousand users at once. But hey, we like to live dangerously, right? So I've been testing that out and it's been with some working pretty well. But Shiny Proxy is again, taking that mindset of containers for apps. You can deploy those just about anywhere, load balance them as much or as little as you need. And really, on top of that other resource we just mentioned, you can monitor the heck out of that, whether it's at the big server level or the app level, or frankly, both. They're very important in this space. Yeah, and, and as we've talked about before, Gollum does have some nice utility functions if you are building Gollum apps to be able to help you get started uh, with your Docker file that you'll need to build that Docker image. And uh, it's it's just really nice to have have that functionality in there and uh, it, it'll help you get started. You'll probably have to do some customization yourself, but but as you said, you know, if you have the uh, ability to Dockerize your Shiny apps, then the, the possibilities are, are, are sort of endless. Yes, and I you mentioned I had to customize a little bit afterwards. Yes, uh, that was what I was a victim of <laughs> the past couple of days where, um, yes, there is a Golem function called like add Docker file with RM. So it'll actually write an RM lock file of your packages. That was the easy part, right? And you just got that up and running. But yeah, my app was talking to a Postgres database and dummy me forgot to open or expose port 5432 for Postgres. And then, of course, on my fancy local container setup, everything worked fine because I had everything in a Docker Compose where they shared the network together transparently. And I don't have to worry about the port stuff. But no, when you deploy as a single Docker file, there be dragons if you don't forget to open those database ports. So sure, learning from me in audio form. But yeah, I do need to write blog posts about this in the future because it was it was quite an adventure. But now that I have it working, it's a it's it's fun stuff. So another another resource right up our alleys of our journeys with shiny in production and like i said mike if we ever do that workshop again we're going to make logging a key focus on this and this will probably be the majority of the material already written for us so that's even awesomer <laughs> i like that idea Now, going to things that can happen, you know, 
not so well liked. You know, we we've touched on this a bit in the previous highlights. When things go haywire, it's often hard to pinpoint sometimes where they went haywire. And our last highlight here is a healthy reminder of just how far the Rapaho can go when you have a function that you've written that perhaps it looks like you're getting the correct result. Like there's no like big errors or warnings in the output of it. But then when you inspect it further and you have other functions downstream that are going crazy on you for not getting the right input, you're wondering where the heck did all that go wrong? Well, our last highlight comes from the R Critique blog. And um, this is normally the part where I shout out the actual author of said blog post, but I have not been able to find their contact information. Hi, it's your friendly host, Eric, again. On a whim, I sent a message via the contact page on the Art Critique blog, and I heard back from the author. She is Dr. Angela Luchachi Timoch, a data scientist of extensive software engineering experience based in Germany. We have a link to her GitHub profile in the show notes. Back to our regular recording. They write this blog post of a very helpful example to start with that I think all of us can probably relate to in our journeys of R, especially in the very beginnings. Imagine we just want to write a CSV of a data frame. Now, there's no such thing in the real world as perfectly clean data, so the example in this post leverages a data frame that does have a missing value somewhere. Yes, this is the real world, right? And so they write they actually have two ways of writing this CSV. One was the built-in write.csv function from the utils package, which is built into base R, and the other with data.tables fwrite function. Now, one would think everything should be the same. No, they're not. The outputs of these data frames coming from these writing functions is different than the one that she created originally from the data.frame function that went into the writing functions as an input. What gives? Well, here's what gives. Apparently, they are, this comes from, you know, default function arguments. So if you don't read the documentation carefully enough, then you might miss that for write.csv, the default way of encoding missing values in that function as the output to the CSV is NA, but within quotes. Now, what happens when you have something in quotes? R thinks that's a character vector. <laughs> and so it's not going to be the same as an NA, literally the NA value in any vector, which does denote missing values. And you get really nuanced with this. There's NA logicals, there's NA integers, NA characters. You usually don't see that under the under the initial glance but there are missing mechanisms but either way this was a case where this mimicked a real world situation that the author experienced we're not finding the rationale or the documentation around the default argument in time led to downstream failures of additional functions in their pipelines and it was a mess for them to debug we don't have a lot of details on that but we'll take our we'll take their word for it that it must have been pretty painful so the moral of this story is, first, the author does not really like default arguments. Um, they would rather you be explicit every time. I do think there's a benefit trade-off to this approach. But the other nugget here is that, let's be real here, oftentimes when we're building functions, 
we are in essence wrapping other functions that come from base R or from other packages that have that set functionality. Maybe we're just putting some, you know, niceties on top of it. Get to know those other function parameters, whether default or not. Hopefully the authors have done a good job documenting it, but you know, it's your ecosystem after all. There can be a bit of variation into how verbose or how little people document their function parameters. So it is something to be aware of that sometimes these small things at first glance can lead to a cascade of debugging nightmares down the road. So very insightful. And yes, it did bring up bad memories of CSVs in R in my early days of my R journey. Thankfully, now I'm mostly writing data frames it's themselves or parquet files because that is a lot more nicer for me than CSVs. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good lessons learned that come along with this blog post uh, that, that were started here. One one lesson learned for me is I didn't even know that there was a write underscore CSV function from the utils package. That was very interesting to me and uh, also very interesting that the default argument to the NA argument there is the string NA. Uh, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I can totally understand how that would, would really hurt your, your workflow potentially if you ran into that and you have a use case where you need to identify missing values. Uh, I don't think that one would, would be found. So I, I think this is probably just a good lesson in taking a look at the all of the different arguments to the function that you are working on. For me, if I am not like 100% certain of the functions arguments that I am working on at the moment, I'm going to the help pane. I'm, I'm putting a, a question mark before that function, right? And, and, and hitting enter in my console and taking a look at all the different arguments that are available to that function uh, and and seeing sort of what make, fits my use case and, and what doesn't fit my use case. Oftentimes, right, I, I'm, I'm trying to squeeze some additional functionality uh, out of maybe a couple different functions that I'm tying together without necessarily realizing that there's, there's an argument in the first function that would just completely solve my use case if I set it and I don't need to, to pipe multiple things together in that chain. So Unfortunately, I believe that there's a lot of people that, that use R consistently, um, maybe more beginners that are, are sort of just, you know, throwing functions uh, in their scripts without really taking a look at all the different arguments and, and the behavior of each different argument within that function. Um, and, and I would really, really recommend that you get to know the arguments within your functions, get to know the documentation. Um, I'll, I'll agree with you, Eric, that there are some cases, you know, we are building in the open source where uh the documentation is less than desirable, but I will also just throw a ricochet shot here and, and say that our documentation is better than Python documentation. <laughs> so, so I, you know, in my experience, because I do have a lot of experience developing in both languages, I, I think that some of the guardrails around our packages that are enforced uh, sort of make sure that, that the documentation is at least at some sort of a level, um, you know, across the different arguments and across the different important pieces of that that function and that that R package, I think the Roxygen has, has really helped enforce some of those standards and, and practices. And if you are an R developer developing an R package, 
have as much empathy as you can possibly have towards your your end users. Make uh, make that Roxygen as descriptive as possible across not only all the function arguments, but but the details that, that walk users through sort of where and when you should be using that function. So I, I think it goes both ways, right? If you're an end consumer of a function, make sure that you are paying attention to the documentation around that function um, because, you know, probably someone is making a decision at the end of the day off of the work that, that you are doing. So it, it's really important to be rigorous and robust in the work that you're doing and really pay attention to the, the code that you're, you're putting in your script. And then on the other side of the coin, if you are the developer making software for others to use, make it as easy and as obvious um, to those end users, you know, what your software is accomplishing. So this was very much sort of a a higher level lessons learned uh, blog post for me. And I think it's a good way to wrap up the highlights uh, this week with some of those reflections. Yeah, actually, yeah, the the principles outline you just said are are definitely things that I'm putting into a procedure we're working on at the day job for best practices for what we call multi-use tools such as our packages and shiny apps and documentation is a big part of that. And I I know from experience it can be easy to get you know, very quickly up and running with something and kind of take it for granted that you think you know its paradigm. And certainly there are efforts in these, you know, families of packages. You can think of the tidyverse as a way to have consistent arguments across a bunch of different functions involved in that in that mini-verse, if you call it. But oftentimes there is no substitute for getting to know what your function that you're utilizing is actually documented to do because there may be surprises that you may not catch at first glance so i think that's the responsible thing to do especially when you're writing tools that others are going to use maybe you can get away with some of it if it's just you running these scripts but guess what that ain't (laughs) that's not my life and i think a lot of people listening to this this very show are writing software whether it's reusable data science pipelines machine learning pipelines shiny apps they're for others to consume. And the best way to do that is have good documentation. And I will, again, shameless plug, maybe not so shameless. My teammate, Will Landau, has some of the best function documentation out there. So if you ever want inspiration for what that looks like and seeing how a real a real knowledgeable pro in this field handles it, yeah, look at targets, look at crew. Those have great documentation inside. So again, once you get started with this, it, it becomes a lot easier to make it more part of your routine from both a consumer standpoint and a developer standpoint. So lots, a good cautionary blog post here, but it's a great reminder that you can never take too much for granted as you're utilizing other people's functions in your in your data science pipelines. Absolutely. No, we just rolled out a, a new version 1.1.0 of our, our proprietary R package for, for building credit scorecards. Uh, and we had a couple new functions and, and wanted to, to, to push them out sort of fast, but we, we had to mentally sort of pump the brakes and make sure that we had all of our unit tests, had our Roxygen documentation, you know, reviewed multiple multiple times by multiple different sets of eyes um, to, to see how different folks interpret it, built a, a really long form vignette as well. And that stuff's almost more important than the functionality, right? It, it's, it's sort of have uh, a little code with a lot of documentation instead of having a lot of code with a little documentation. That's a principle that I, I firmly believe in. 
V2, and you're touching on another important part that I'm trying to articulate better is that it's one thing to have a developer mindset as you're building this, but that end user in mind, whether it's co-developers that maybe are working on other little parts of your package or pipeline, but more importantly, those that are actually going to use this day to day, getting their feedback early and often before you have a major release, that we're actually building that recommendation in this procedure we're authoring. We haven't found a great way to label it because sometimes user acceptance has a connotation that's not the best, but it's like the end user's perspective. Something along those lines is critically important in this space. So yeah, lots of great advice as always. And speaking of great advice, you're going to find lots of resources here in this week's Our Weekly Issue. Awesome blog posts, new packages coming out. It's the full gamut as always. And Tony's done a tremendous job with another fantastic release under his watch. And we'll take a couple of minutes for our additional finds here. And as we mentioned in in, um, the logging highlight, there's been a lot of great resources shared from the recent Shiny in Production Conference that was held by Jumping Rivers over in the UK. We're still waiting on the recordings, but this issue has a bunch of additional presentations that were made at that conference. And the one that I'll plug here is by Chris Brownlee called Anatomy of a Shiny App. And when we say anatomy, we're not just talking about the, oh yeah, you have a UI and a server part. This is really getting under the hood at the object-oriented approach that Shiny takes with, say, R6 classes and how things are passed back and forth, the nuts and bolts of certain reactive constructs. It is quite fascinating to literally go under the hood of what makes a Shiny app work the way it does so it's a great a great technical overview of what shiny is all about so i thought that was an entertaining read and again i can't wait to see the recording of all these talks when they're released so mike what did you find yeah so the wood chipper has fired up here uh, apologies but <laughs> found a phenomenal talk uh from kira thompson that was given at the shiny in production 2023 conference. Uh, the talk is called Dynamic Annotations, 10 Tips for Better Text. And it's it's all about really uh, having text that is really informative and makes it obvious to the end user sort of what your chart is displaying um, within your, your charts, which could be within a, a shiny app or, or otherwise. And it, it's really just trying to right call the attention to the right places of your chart, try to drive home the point of the chart and uh, it very much is reminiscent of a lot of the topics that, that Maya Gans and David Grangin talked about at, at Posit Conference, which is sort of using that other side of the, the brain in how you are designing uh, the materials that for your, your data science output uh, for end users to be able to consume and understand uh, as easily as possible. So phenomenal talk. Uh, there's some great slides that, that go along with it. We have the link in the show notes, so I'd encourage folks to check it out. Yeah, terrific, terrific find there. And yeah, I've been soaking up all the knowledge that's been shared on this and lots of takeaways that I'm going to take in my uh, future Shiny app development and other other, um, efforts in my ways of communicating results more effectively to our user base at, at the day job and also in my personal stuff as well. And yeah, communication, right? Well, we hope that this little podcast here has been a great way to communicate the value of our weekly itself. Again, I want to emphasize this is a community project. The lights are on because we have such an awesome community to draw upon, but we also need your help. 
our team is definitely looking for new curators to join our group as we think about next year, thinking about new ideas that we have to make our infrastructure even more robust, but more importantly, being able to share this content every single week with all of you in the best way possible. So the best way to get in touch with us is to head to rweekly.org. You'll find links to our GitHub repository with all the details for if you're interested in becoming a curator, the best ways to get involved and get in touch with us. And certainly, yeah, reach out to me personally if you'd like to get involved. Um, we can definitely hook you up with the, with the right resources to start with. And also, if you want to contribute to that awesome resource that you found, we are also immensely helped with your pull requests and your links to additional blog posts, additional packages that you want the our weekly community as a whole to benefit from. That again is just a pull request away on the Git, GitHub it, repo itself. Just go to rweekly.org. There's a link directly at the top right corner to the upcoming issue draft. It's all marked down all the time. It is quite easy to get started. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Ihwe Sia, the author of Knitter, told me many years ago, if he can't learn Markdown in five minutes, he would give me $5. But no, he did not have to pay me money. I learned Markdown that quick. And I think you can too. So we definitely value your input. Again, pull requests are more than welcome for this project. And also, we love hearing from you as well. There are multiple ways. You can give us a shout on our contact page. That's linked directly in the show notes of this episode. And if you're listening to a, within a modern podcast app, such as Podverse or Fountain, Castomatic, many others in this space, you can send us a little boost along the way to give us a little real-time messaging along the way in your favorite podcast player. Also, you can get in touch with us on social media. I guess I'm still sporadically on the Bird app at the RCast, but you're going to find me more on Mastodon these days. I am at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And also you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn as well when I put across, post the uh, episode show notes and the like on there too. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Oh, that's a good shout out because probably LinkedIn is actually the best place to find me as well. I think I'm Michael J. Thomas too on there if you're looking for my profile um, or you can search me through Catchbrook Analytics. But uh, you can also find me on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Terrific, terrific. And yeah, I guess that Woodchip was telling us, yeah, we better wrap things up now before more things get chopped up in this recording. <laughs> no, it's all been good. It's all been good. So we're going to wrap up this week's episode of Our Week Highlights. And one programming note, we may not be back at our usual time next week because yours truly is going to be heavily involved in the R Pharma conference that's running from Tuesday to Thursday next week. And also the workshops are happening this week as well. Um, it's not too late to register. We'll put links to register in the show notes of this episode, but we'll certainly let you know if we have a, a change in recording plans for that. But in any event, we hope you enjoyed this episode of our weekly highlights and we'll be back with another episode soon.